Hi, I'm Dave and this is uh, episode 6 of Police Stories Podcast. This is a series of shortish stories about my 28-year career in the UK Police Force. Thanks for coming back and thanks for those of you that have subscribed and liked and followed and all that. I see some of you have been on the YouTube channel as well, which is quite good. Police Stories Podcast on YouTube and um, there's been a few downloads on there as well, so thanks for that. Uh, it's interesting, again, where, where people come from on the downloads, very, very varied, you know, America quite a bit, uh, Belgium, Cairo, the UK, um, all sorts of places, uh, Canada, quite a few. Uh, so it's quite interesting uh, where where people have come from that have been listening. Anyway, on to today, and now this story is slightly out of uh, order in terms of, uh, I was trying to do this roughly as my career sort of progressed, but actually this one is going backwards slightly. So this is uh, fairly early on in my career, in fact, very early on. I've done my uh, kind of, I think, total of about 12, maybe 16 weeks at police training college at the time. You did 10 weeks, I think it was 10 or 12 weeks at the college. Then you came back to your police station or your NIC that you were going to be posted to. You worked four weeks on the street and then you went back to the college again for another maybe four weeks um, once you'd had just a little bit of experience. So in total, probably... Um, around about, I think, sort of 16 weeks, something like that. Um, so I, I was still on the duty. I'd had my time in the training college, and then I'd um, I'd come back. Uh, I'd, I'd gone on to the duty unit, which meant that basically I had an experienced cop looking after me for the first uh, 10 weeks, I think it was, while I was on the streets. And in that time, you're expected to do, you know, the basic stuff. You do your shoplifters and your low-level damage and things like that. But nothing nothing too sort of uh, exciting, really. It's a, it's a way of easing you in. So I was on an early turn, which meant starting at that time at 6 in the morning. Um, and uh, my normal tutor was away. I actually had another tutor covering. I think my tutor was on holiday, maybe. Um, so I had a different one. Anyway, came in the morning in uniform, ready to sort of start my shift. And I was told that my tutor had gone sick. So I thought, okay, right, I'm probably going to end up doing, you know, fairly menial tasks, writing up some reports or catching up on maybe some swatting or something like that, some sort of um, essay to write or something to read, uh, nothing too exciting. But they actually said, ah, but before yesterday when we spoke to him, he said that you'd be all right to collect a prisoner today. So I thought, oh, this would be a bit more interesting, collect a prisoner, you know, perhaps I'm going to pop to you know, the the station, you know, in the next town or something like that with somebody, you know, it'll just be a bit different. And they said, well, actually, no, uh, we need this prisoner that you're picking up, he's in Glasgow. And I was like, Glasgow? You know, we're kind of about 600 miles away. I was based at that point from Glasgow, fairly near to Gatwick Airport. Uh, so I was like, well, how's that going to work? They said, well, you're going to fly up, you know. Now, I'd never heard of this before. They said it like it happened all the time. And the reality is, I know it still doesn't happen all the time or didn't happen all the time. Um, but I think they were trying to play it down. I think they thought I was going to kind of refuse. So I said, OK, fair enough. Oh, that'd be good. You know, and I instantly I was thinking, wow, this would be really cool. You know, going on a plane, you know, being paid for at work. That's great. I said, right. So who am I going with? They said, well, that's the problem. Um, you know, your tutor's gone off sick. And, you know, unfortunately, there's not many people on and something else has happened. And, and this is a classic sort of police tale. They have very strict rules about, well, you need two of you to do this and you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And all the time you stick to the rules, you don't come unstuck. And that's absolutely fine. 
Of course, when it suits them in this scenario, you know, all the rules out the window, no problems at all. So, well, actually, you're just going by yourself. But this guy's all right. They were quick to play, you know. Oh, no, this prisoner coming back, no problems at all. He's wanted for burglary. He's been arrested in Glasgow. He's on a warrant, basically. So he's sort of knew that uh, they had enough evidence to arrest him for burglary. And then he's almost certainly fled the town, which actually was the, the next town over to where I worked. Um, and then eventually been arrested in Glasgow, uh, Strathclyde Police, as it was then. It wasn't Police Scotland. There were separate forces. Um, Strathclyde Police have, have contacted us and told us that, you know, we've got this guy for you, so come and get him. So I was a bit taken about. I was like, I was quite excited until the point they told me I was doing this by myself. I was all sorts of things racing through my mind. What am I going to do if he kicks off on the plane? You know, how am I going to cope? I've got barely any service. I'm 21. You know, I'm vaguely confident, but not not like this. You know, so anyway, of course, you want to uh, seem like a a go getter and that nothing bothers you. So I sort of smiled and yeah, no problem at all. That's fine. Yeah. While I'm secretly thinking, shit. You know. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I was told to go home and get into civvies, into civilian clothes. Obviously, I wasn't going to travel in uniform, so zipped back home, got changed, came back, came back to the Nick, and uh, I was told, I think, by a sergeant, oh, I'll, I'll run you up to the airport, um, you know, and we, we'll get this flight for you. And uh, I said, when does it go, you know? And he said, oh, it's about half an hour. I said, what, half an hour it leaves? He said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I was thinking, well, how's that going to work? You know, it was about a, I don't know, 10 or 15 minute drive to the airport. And then I was thinking, but, you know, even even in those days, pre 9-11, getting through security and getting on the plane and getting checked in and all that, you know, how is that going to work? That That's going to take, you know, at least an hour or something. I'm going to miss this flight. He said, don't you worry about that. You know, we'll get you on that flight. That's fine. So, again, probably fairly naive on my part. Um, so we drive up to the airport. And basically a site, you know, Gatwick is quite a large international airport and was in those days as well. And uh, basically quite a large sort of side gate was opened. This had obviously, you know, happened before. And I was driven onto the edge of the uh, the tarmac, basically, and around one of the uh, sort of side roads within the airport. There was no checking in, there was no tickets, there was no nothing. And I was just driven straight to um, the steps at the aircraft uh, in a marked police car. Um, so of course, instantly that attracts quite a bit of attention, and now I'm aware that they've actually held this flight for me slightly. So there's me turning up in a marked police car, and I've got a row of kind of a hundred plus angry looking faces looking out the window, wondering why I've been brought by a police car and where's my luggage, you know. And anyway, not very happy with me. So it wasn't the best start. So I'm, I'm dropped off at the bottom of the, you know, the big. Uh, sort of aluminium aircraft steps that are wheeled up to the plane and, and up I go. Plane is completely full. They've just left the very back aisle for me. So you have this kind of walk of shame like I've lost my luggage or was having a drink in the bar and didn't make it on time. Head down, kind of walk into the back of the plane while everyone's glaring at me. And um, so anyway, I get get to the back of the plane and I sit on the plane on the, on the back row and... Uh, all the kind of staff on board, you know, the hostesses and the crew, they knew who I was um, and they had a vague idea probably of what was going to happen. And it turns out actually they were the same crew that were going to come back with me. So uh, being British, I had a cup of tea and calmed my nerves. And it's a short flight. It's about an hour or so. On the way, I spoke to the hostesses knowing that they were coming back with me as well. And I said, look, um, when I come back, no matter what this guy says, don't give him a hot drink. 
you know, tell him the kettle's broken or whatever. Just, you know, don't, he doesn't get a hot drink. Um, and absolutely, because at that time, I think you got served, you know, like a morning roll or something on the way back. Um, do not give him any cutlery at all, not even plastic cutlery. And they were like, yeah, sure, no problems. I and mean, they were really good to me. Um, so short flight, all these sort of things racing through my mind. What am I going to do if this happens? What am I going to do if he goes for the exit? You know, do I keep him handcuffed all the way? Because this had never been covered in police training college. You know, they don't specifically say, oh, and by the way, if you're on a plane, the standard things to do is this, this and this. So I was kind of, you know, making it up on the hoof, you know, and trying to think how I was going to do it. I thought that I probably wouldn't cuff him all the way back because it's pretty uncomfortable. But that is very much dependent on kind of how he was going to be. Uh, so yeah, short flight, about an hour, we come into Glasgow, we land, it's all straightforward at this point. We pull up to our stand, you know, we taxi off the runway and onto our stand. Sure enough, the plane gets held again. Everyone's, you know, kind of keen and itching to get off the flight. Uh, captain comes on and says, could everyone just stay in their seats for a second, please? Um, so now, of course, there's much, uh, you know, much uh, supposition going on amongst people and talking and what have you. And it's quite amusing because in front of me was uh, a couple of older ladies uh, in the row in front of me. And uh, I think they were a bit, now I'd say they were mutton Jeff or mutton, which is Cockney slang, rhyming slang for deaf, mutton Jeff, deaf. And uh, I think they both had hearing aids in, almost certainly they were turned up massively because I think they thought they were talking in hushed tones but in actual fact they were talking above normal conversation level and they seemed to think that uh, you know the six inches in front of me <laughs> the difference between us and the chairs we were sitting in when she's in the they're in the road just in front of me uh, there was some you know invisible soundproof barrier that I definitely couldn't hear what they were saying because they were saying quite loudly about I wonder who this man is behind me you know, uh, did you see he got to have a police car? Do you think he's in trouble? Is he a policeman? You know, and there was all this kind of, and I suspect that was probably going on throughout uh, a lot of the plane, certainly the plane, the side that had seen me, you know, arrive in the police car. Lots of sort of chatter and uh, people being nosy, basically. Um, so, yes, captain says everyone stay in their seats. And then I see this Strathclyde police van come chundling along the edge of the runway again and round to the stand where we were and it stops at the bottom of the steps everyone's held in their seats everyone's a bit miffed at this and as I say is having a uh, a good sort of uh, natter about why this is the case and then of course uh, it wasn't the captain it might have been like the first officer or something but it was definitely one of the flight crew as opposed to the air hostess he came back to me so of course he's immediately drawing attention to me and gets the tongues wagging again and says, look, you know, do you want to get off first? We'll hold you here. I appreciate you haven't got much time. You're back on this flight and we've got to leave in 20 minutes. So I was thinking, wow, you know, I don't know how how we're going to turn this around quickly enough. But anyway, so I was like, thanks very much. I zip off. Typically, it was only front steps and I was at the back. So once again, I had to walk down the length of the plane. Uh, I get off. Strathclyde van picks me up from the custody. Uh, sorry, from the, the bottom of the steps. <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, and we're taken off to custody now. Luckily, uh, the custody at the airport at the time was very, very close to the runway. So, I mean, literally, it was like a five-minute journey in the van. The guy in the van seemed very friendly, although I couldn't tell you for sure because uh, he had a really, really strong, hard sort of Glasgow accent. I now know that sort of Glaswegians quite often are called Ouija's. Uh, that's their sort of nickname and and some of them have incredibly hard accents to understand or certainly for me 
And, you know, he seemed nice. He was smiling. He was talking to me. I can't really tell you what he said. I haven't got a clue. You know, really difficult to understand. So I just smiled and kind of nodded a bit, you know. Um, taken off to custody. Quite a small custody. There's only about six cells, I suppose, in there. Uh, and I was told to kind of uh, point to some seats and said, sit down, you know. And I could see down the corridor, um, the sort of lit corridor with uh, three cells, I think, either side. Um and there was some conversations going on. I could hear people talking down there. Um, but I was basically waiting to be seen, although I kept checking my watch because, as I say, I was told 20 minutes and they're off again, the flight that I'm meant to be on. So um, <clears throat> I can hear this particularly deep voice uh, coming from down uh, the end where the cell is. And then I can only describe this man mountain came walking down the... Um, down the corridor I mean he was absolutely huge it was the custody sergeant and he was a bear of a man he was six six I would say and probably 20 odd stone or 280 pound for our American listeners he's a big big guy and he walked uh like he was on a, a parade ground you know he was clearly ex-military and certainly at the time a lot of guardsmen which is a regiment uh, within the British army that were renowned for their sort of particular smartness. They do a lot of the ceremonial stuff, but they were generally picked for their very big big guys. I'm pretty confident you had to be like over six foot, maybe even more to actually get in at that point. And this guy struck me straight away as an ex-guardsman, absolutely massive. And just the way he walked and sort of carried himself, you know, he was a very smart guy. Anyway, he came down, uh, said hello to me, and thankfully he had a sort of Highland accent, uh, which is a lot softer, so I could understand him, no problems. He goes behind the sort of custody desk and he picks out a, um, a metal clipboard and he starts writing down some details and making notes. And he kind of leaned over the the, the uh, custody desk and kind of looked me up and down and looked a bit, you know, kind of confused. And he said, is it just you? And I was like, uh, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, and he said, oh, surprising. You know, he said, uh you're a tough guy then, are you? You know, And I was kind of thinking, nope, the absolute opposite. <laughs> but basically, there was no one else to come with me. So I was just sort of looking, I was like, well, well, you know, I didn't really answer, but was not really sure quite where to go with it. Anyway, at this point, he's filled out his stuff on the clipboard and he hands it over to me on the top and he said, sign here, this is you signing for the prisoner. So I said, yeah, sure, no problems. So I start signing the form and I'm looking down the form and it has all the things you'd expect on the you know, name, age, date of birth of the guy and... Uh, brief details of the offence, burglary, you know, so not a violent offence. So that I thought that was a start. Oh, he's basically broken into someone's house, you know. Um, but as I'm signing this form, I notice that there's a really thick red line with a marker pen all the way around the form, uh, which is, you know, kind of an A4 size form. And it's got this great big thick red line all the way around it. It's clearly been drawn on, you know, it's not normally there. So I said, uh, just one thing, Sarge, what is this red line? And he said, oh, he's high risk. And I kind of looked at him and was like, uh, high risk? You know, he's like, yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, in the police here in the UK, you know, they have these various terms, how they sort of deal with people. It's, it's recorded on our PNC system, the police national computer. So when you do a check and they come back and say, oh, yeah, you've got Joe Bloggs in front of you and he's known for, and they normally have these markers. And there's about five or six of them, but you rarely get them all together. You know, it's normally just one or two, so it might be violent weapons, an escaper, for example, contagious is another one that normally means they've got, there's a few things we're allowed to record in terms of what they may have for officer safety. So for example, Hep B, um, 
things like that. If they had hepatitis, you know, you'd know that. So there's these various markers. Anyway, so the guy says, well, he's high risk, you know, so he's, um, he's violent, he's an escaper, he's uh, contagious, uh, mental health, you know, and, it, and this, he just reeled off, like, all of the markers. And I'm kind of looking at it, I'm saying, so, sorry, just to clarify, the prisoner that I'm picking up by myself with kind of three months in the police at 21, he's all of these markers. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he said, and that's why I was surprised why you're by yourself. So now I'm thinking my heart's banging away and I'm like, what have I let myself in for? And I said, so what's he been like in custody? He said, well, actually, he's been fine. But he said, he's got potential. You know, I think he could go at any second given the look at these markers. So I was like, right, okay. Uh, I mean, what am I going to do at this point? It's not like I can change my mind, is it? Not like I can say, actually, I don't fancy it. I think I'll just leave it for today. I'll go back by myself. So trying to sound confident, but almost certainly not. Um, I said, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, bring him out. No problem. So he comes out, the prisoner, this is from the cell, comes down, says hello, you know, and seems vaguely friendly at this point. I have to say physically wasn't big. He was kind of, I don't know, 5'10", you know, 12 stone or something. Very sort of Mr. Average and not big, not tall, not muscly. Just very, very sort of average and normal looking if there is such a thing. Um, so, so I was slightly relieved at that. Although later on in my police career, I'd learned that actually size doesn't mean everything. Um, it really doesn't matter on someone's physical size. It's more about the willingness, of the fight in them and particularly any sort of special training they've got, you know. Um, but anyway... So I said to him, look, pal, we're going back on the plane. And he knew that already. He'd been told to score. So I said, I'm going to put cuffs on you. I'm going to cuff you to the front um, because it's comfier. And he said, and I said to him, look, if you muck about at all on the flight, these will stay on the whole flight. And he just kind of nodded and didn't really say a lot. But I'm pretty confident that as I said that, trying to sound assertive, my voice was cracking, you know. So <laughs> I wasn't sure if I kidded him, you know, just how confident I was. Um so cuffs go on him to the front and uh, all the paperwork signed and we're back outside. And this has happened fairly quickly within about 10 minutes, thankfully. We're back outside into the Strathclyde van. Obviously, I've got hold of his arm. Um, by this time, <laughs> they fully loaded the plane again for the return flight. So we had basically a repeat of the beginning. And um, so I pull up to the bottom of the steps. The plane is full and I've got all these people now looking out the window at me Um and we're getting out of a marked van. It's clear that I'm holding the guy's arm, but I've taken my jacket off and I've put them over the top of his cuffs. So I'm trying to make it not too obvious, but probably doing a terrible job. So everyone on the one side of the plane knew this guy was getting on the plane in handcuffs, which is obviously never a great start. And if I thought that tongues were wagging on the way up there about what I was doing, you can imagine what was happening now. So sure enough, and I'm sure they did it on purpose, they put the steps to the front of the plane and they kept the rear aisle clear for me again so we have to go up the steps walk down the length of the aisle while everyone's staring at us and get to the back of the plane so I put him on the window seat um, in the back aisle uh, so that he's obviously got the least chance of kind of getting out um, and I said to him look I'll take these cuffs off but you know I'm telling you they're going to stay on if you muck about at all so cuffs come off and he again kind of agreed he wasn't really talking much at this point um so we take off and it's not too bad um, and we get up and the first thing he asks for is a cup of tea. 
that you know the hostesses come around and start doing the tea, coffee, you know, any sugars? Do you want to roll or whatever? Um, and he straight away pipes up with, "Oh, can I have a tea, please?" You know, like nice and hot. And this is just what I didn't want happening. But luckily, the um, you know the hostesses would remember what I'd asked on the way out, so they said to him, "Look, I'm sorry. You know, there's a problem with the the boiler." Um, I can do your cold drink, you know, of course he asked for a beer. I was like, no, no, he's not having a beer. You know, there's always a chance. Um, so off they go, they get him, you know, a can of juice or something, some, some cold drink. And he's sort of vaguely placated at this point. Of course, awkwardly, then the, uh, trolley continues down the aisle, giving it tea, coffee and all the rest of it down there. Of course, people are going, oh yes, please. Coffee, tea, I have this, I'll have that. <laughs> and happily giving out all these hot drinks which initially he didn't notice um but as they were coming back again obviously he was thinking about it and he was looking at what they were doing and he realized that like everyone had got a hold uh, a hot drink from this magical boiler that wasn't working so he said to me here governor you know i wanted a cup of tea and weirdly lots of prisoners have a lot of sugars in their tea if you ever help out in custody so you were a jailer which is the one that's sort of getting them their tea or coffee or giving them a paper or whatever while they're in their cell you'd normally say very first thing when someone comes into custody just to keep them sweet you know do you want a tea or coffee mate you know yes please yeah uh tea you know oh, oh do you take sugar yes please uh, six honestly it was virtually every prisoner that came to the door had a monstrous amount of sugar i, I don't know why but it's, it's pretty much a known thing i have no clue um but anyway I'm digressing. So he was saying basically he wants his cup of tea. Uh, but I said, look, you know, you're not getting a tea. They, they only serve it, you know, on the way down. It's a short flight. That's it. You're getting it down there and, that, and that's that. So this, you could see this riled him up a bit. But I said, you've had your can of juice. He'd had, a, I think, a bacon roll at this point as well. So he wasn't doing too bad, to be honest with you. Um, and at this point, I tried to speak to him, but he wasn't really wanting to engage. Uh, he was just kind of looking out the window and mumbling to himself occasionally sort of incoherently which was a little strange and once again like the flight up there I could now hear all the the sort of rumours and and people guessing why he was uh, on the plane and who I was you know I think it, I said somebody saying I must be because this just didn't happen in the UK bearing in mind or well if it did it was really subtle um, I had all sorts of weird and wonderful things I could hear people talking about I, oh I must be uh a special agent, you know, and there was talk of James Bond, you know, and oh, I think he, he must be MI5, is it MI6, maybe he's CIA, you know, and all these things that, ridiculous things that I clearly wasn't, you know, <laughs> had they only known the truth, but anyway, that's what it's like, isn't it? Members of the public uh, love to uh, make a drama or, or sort of fear the worst. Anyway, so... Uh, flight's not too bad at this point. Uh, I've just started to try and have a chat with the guy because it's always easier if you can speak to someone. Uh, he's not really wanting to engage. Uh, and now we're coming in. And the next thing is uh, when it comes to uh, his role, actually, he's had his role, but they have given him plastic cutlery at this point. So I'm very aware he's now got a plastic knife sat in front of him. Um, so I was quite keen to catch the hostess eye and say, uh, is there any chance you could just uh, collect the rubbish? And I was going to quickly scoop up all the things in front of him, particularly this knife, and get it away from him. But I just couldn't catch their eye. So I was very aware that he had this knife in front of him. Uh, might have been plastic, but obviously, uh, as we almost certainly know now, uh, from prisons and things, and shanks, as they like to call them in UK prisons, they, you know easily make a, a sort of pretty terrible weapon out of a sort of sharp plastic so 
uh, now we've, we're down above uh, Gatwick at this point, and I think we're in like a holding pattern. So captain comes on and says, sorry, there's going to be a slight delay. Um, there's more, we've left, missed our slot or something, and, and therefore uh, we're in a holding pattern, which I knew meant that we're going to be in the air for slightly longer as we kind of circle, waiting for another slot to land at Gatwick. Um, so this guy now is starting to mumble to himself more, and I can see that he's starting to sweat a bit. Um, and he's obviously getting a bit agitated, and I was thinking, oh, no, please, can we just land this plane? I need to get this guy off, you know. Um, but, of course, that's not happening, and I'm getting increasingly nervous. Uh, he's still got this stuff in front of him, including this knife. Um, and as he's sort of building up and, and now definitely mumbling to himself more and more, I was thinking, wow, this guy's going to have a complete episode on me at this point. Um, he picks up the knife, he's got it in his hand, and whether he intended to or whether it was just a flirt, I don't know. But he basically had this knife in his hand. He turns to look at me straight in the eye, very, very intense, uh, quite close to my face and says, have you ever had a fight on a plane, uh, you know, with this knife in his hand? So I kind of put my hand across his hand, took the knife out of it and said, no, I haven't. And I'm not going to now. So just calm down or the cuffs are going to go back on. And weirdly, that and I expect fully expected him to then basically leap on me and it to turn into a massive roll around on the aircraft, everything I didn't want. Um, but weirdly, he just that totally seems to like snapping your fingers, flicking a switch. He just calmed down and went, okay, right, fine, no problems, and just sort of sat back down. Well, he hadn't stood up, but you know, he was leaning forward and definitely kind of almost like gearing up for something. But he just leant back in his chair, totally calmed down, stopped sweating. You know, and uh, and that and that was that. You know, basically, there's no problems at all. And I've I've since learned that unfortunately, when you're dealing with kind of mental health uh, types, it's really difficult to predict them. You know, you can be told they're one thing, and if you if you keep them right, you know, they can be fine. However, if you say that one word, that one word that will just set them off, or for whatever reason you say something and they take it the wrong way. It doesn't matter how good you are. And you, you'll, you'll hear people, I hear it all the time saying, oh no, I'm good with people. I, I, I'll i be able to talk him round and all the rest of it. And I agree with people that are kind of a sound mind. But if you get someone with mental health problems, you have no clue what's going to set them off. And I don't care who you are. You say the wrong thing or make the wrong phrase or they take something in the wrong way and you've got a big problem, you know. So um, thankfully, for whatever reason, uh, me talking to him in, you know, in that way was just enough for him to calm down. So to be honest with you, there was no real other issues with the flights. We came in and landed. They held everyone on the aircraft again. I mean, this is the third time now, so I'm getting kind of used to this. I recuffed him to the front again, which he accepted, and I put my jacket over the top. Once again, the cabin uh, crew came down and said, look, we've held the flight. Uh, everyone's staying on board until you're off and out comes the mark police van and uh, I get up after leading down the aisle by the cuffs even though they're covered so it's really obvious who he is and what he is um, but we get down and um, onto the onto the van you know or into the van and away back down into the custody which was at uh, Gatwick airport I think he was being taken on somewhere else uh, shortly after that um, so actually there were it wasn't that many issues. There certainly could have been, and I felt there could have been. And um, when I got back, you know, uh, I think it was the following day, I was asked just to, you know, write up. I think at that point we sort of wrote logs as to 
what we'd done, you know, so that at the end of our probationary period, we could say, oh, we've done this, we've done that. And if we were asked details about something, we were able to just, you know, talk through what it was. So I was writing this up and the tutor sergeant came in, my sort of sergeant who was in charge of me, and said, oh, what'd you get up to yesterday then? You know, I heard so-and-so was off sick. And I, oh yeah, I went to Glasgow. And he looked at me sort of perplexed, was like, Glasgow? What, working? I was like, yeah, yeah, I was flown up. I had to collect a prisoner. He said, really? So it was quite unusual. He said, oh, well, that was quite interesting then for you. A bit different from a shoplifter, you know. Um, who'd you go with? And I said, well, no one. There was no one available. It was just me. And he, he just couldn't believe it. He was like, just you. They've sent just you to go and get this prisoner. And he said, yeah, that's right. He said, that breaks all the rules. That's just not allowed. You know, um, he, he said, I can't believe they did that. And this is what I was saying at the beginning. It's a classic police thing that, you know, when it suits them, when they haven't got the resources to send with you, basically they'll bend or break the rules to make it work. Um, and I suppose we're guilty as well because as cops, we make it work. You know, we could have, I could have said, unlikely as it was, bearing in mind my service, look, that's not safe. I'm not doing that. But, you know, you don't want to get a reputation as being difficult um, or or saying that you're not going to do something. So and that was that, my flight on the plane. Um, it's the only one I ever did in my career, actually, on the police, uh, officially anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, could have gone horribly wrong, but thankfully didn't. Um, so I hope that was a vaguely interesting and um, there'll be another one along next week. Um, I might try and occasionally slip in a, a short one during the week just so you uh, just to keep you going. But hopefully it's still something you find interesting. So a bit different that one again. Um, got lots to go. And you might be wondering how uh, I'm kind of perhaps remembering all these. And what I did was around about, I don't know, 10 years into my career or so, probably the, a time around that we started getting phones and using them quite a bit, mobiles and things, I realised there was like a note system on my phone. And I thought then that one day I might want to perhaps write a book or something. So every time I went to an interesting or a unusual incident, I basically just put a couple of lines uh, in just to remind me about that incident. And um, and so it went on throughout my whole career. I've always always done it, you know, throughout my career. Uh, and I've actually ended up with, I think we've done, what's this, episode six or so, but I've got about 100 more <laughs> to go, basically. So we could be here for a couple of years or so. Now, they'll vary in length, obviously. Um, I've got two or three really big incidents that I may well end up splitting across two or three episodes, perhaps, because I think they'll be quite lengthy. Some of them will be quite difficult to talk about. Um, and what I'll probably do when I release those, is I'll, although I'll perhaps put them over different episodes, I'll put them out maybe all at once, just so you haven't got the frustration of getting halfway through some big incident and then uh, having to wait a week to listen to it, because I know that can be annoying. But anyway, I'm digressing once again. So there we go. Please uh, kind of like and subscribe, have a listen on YouTube, on the Police Stories podcast, or at least maybe you can put some comments on there if you want um, as to, to how you think it's going or any questions you've got at all. I'll see if I can answer them. But for now, that's us. So thanks very much for listening again, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye.